2: your brain.
0: to episode number 63 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode is going to be my new year new movie number five here as i'm going to have featured reviews of my second 2021 film of the year of hunted as well as the 1980 film cruising which if you're wondering here yes i do know this is not necessarily a horror film but i kind of delve a little bit into more why i'm still including it on here and then i also have quite a few mini reviews for you of matango the grudge remake from 2004 here in america Shaun of the dead 2001 maniacs then technically my first 2021 film of the year of hacksaw and then i also for my odyssey through the ones watched 1931's frankenstein So I really don't have anything to kind of get you up to speed with here. Those are all going to be the reviews that are going to be featured on this episode. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review of this week, I'm going to watch Matango of, from 1963. This is directed by Ishiro Honda. And this comes from the screenplay by Takashi Kimara. And then the adaptation is from Shinichi Hoshi and Masami Fukushima. This comes from the story The Voice in the Night from William Hope Hodgson. And then there's uncredited work on the screenplay as well by Sakyo Komo Atsu. This is starring Akira Kubo, Kumi Masuno and Hiroshi Kozumi. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being shipwreck survivors slowly transform into mushrooms. Now, this is another film that I'd never heard of until I got into listening to horror movie podcasts. I believe it originally was from Jerry from Kill the Cast that turned me on to this movie. And then I had a buddy who sent me a copy of it so I could check it out as well. So I figured I would go ahead and, you know, watch it immediately and not be rude. But to kind of give a little bit more background information is we have somebody in a room in the Tokyo Medical Center. We only see them from behind and they go about telling, you know, how they ended up getting there and that they don't think they're crazy. We are then on a yacht. That's in the past here you know to show these events and it belongs to masafumi kazi who is portrayed by yoshio tushiya and then with him also is kenji murai who is kubo who is a professor there's a singer of mami sagaguchi who is portrayed by muzuno and she is also seeing kazi and just kind of using him for his money there's the skipper of the ship who is Nayoki sakuta who's portrayed by hiroshi kazumi And then there's his sailor of Senzo Koyama, who is portrayed by Kenji Sahara. And then the other two on this vessel are Itsiro Yoshida, portrayed by Hiroshi Takagawa, who is a writer. And then we have Akiko Soma, who is portrayed by Miki Yashiro, who is a student. Now, they're all having a good time, and that is until bad weather rolls in. The storm ends up crippling the ship and destroys the mess. So the sails can't properly stand up, and then the engine wasn't serviced properly, so that that gives out. And they also lose their radio while they're trying to send an SOS and their location. When they, you know, end up waking up the next day, they're just drifting. And then we get to see pretty early on that the tensions are starting to rise as their outlook becomes bleaker. Now, they think that their fortunes have changed as they come up on an island. Now, it has fog around it, but they're able, you know, to get to it. They don't find any survivors but as they explore they discover a vessel that is anchored on the other side of the island but the sails are rotting and it has this odd mold and fungus growing all over it as they explore they discover that it's an oceanography vessel and the more they look into it they discover what happened there and those on board now there's this odd mushroom species that they find called matango it has effects on the nervous system that drives people mad but there's another side effect that's much more dangerous and they start to think that all the survivors are dead, but they actually might have become something much more monstrous. Now, I find this interesting is that we have some good social commentary here. And I think it's kind of also interesting that this is directed by Honda, who is also the director of Godzilla. and I believe he did quite a few of those Godzilla type films. And there's some social commentary from there that you can also see in this movie. So to start this off i do like the setting at first we're on a yacht that becomes you know disabled so i like to see that we're that society and humanity breaking down pretty early mommy at first doesn't think that there's anything serious going on but sakuda snaps at her now he's upset with koyoma for not doing his job and service in the engine before they embarked yoshida is going mad pretty early on and we see what type of character kazi is as things go on as well Now the characters are all distinct and then when the food starts to run short we see that you know people will lie cheat and steal which i definitely believe and there are also these mushrooms that are on the island now this is pretty subtle in exploring this part of it we first see a giant one on the vessel and then they find the captain's log which also reveals that the crew went crazy and they started to eat these mushrooms later in the movie it is discovered that there's a ship graveyard around this island And what doesn't help here is that there's this thick fog surrounding it. So it makes it seem like ships are just running aground with how shallow it becomes quickly. With all this, there's that, you know, building on the fear of being stranded on this island. But there aren't any animals here either. So, like, they can't hunt because they end up finding a gun at one point while they're also kind of searching. What I think we have is an interesting scene here where a bird refuses to get close. You know, making matters much worse there. Then for the social commentary here, by eating these mushrooms, as a spoiler, it turns... You know it makes people go mad by entering their nervous system but prolonged eating actually turns them into mushroom people there's the backdrop here of radiation is what the ship that's there is actually has equipment that they're trying to study this and see its effects on the environment around it now there are stuff here on the ship from japan but it also seems there could be stuff from soviet russia as well as some of the measuring numbers are from the united states there isn't a sigil flag or any distinguishing marks from what country the vessel's from The people in the movie make it out to be that it's a spy ship what i take here is that there are nuclear testing that was being done by at least you know if not all then at least some of the the superpowers none of them are innocent in all of this and can't be trusted now japan also really has a lot of mistrust for good reason you know hence we get movies like the original godzilla for what happened at hiroshima and nagasaki now considering that this really you know kind of helped you know pull me into the movie as well now I think what really kind of helps here is the good acting now part of this is just how well the characters were written they're all distinct and help me to differentiate between them Kubo is such a good guy and is looking out for the scared Yahir show she showed good fear for sure and then we have Mizuno who I liked as she's you know getting her way but then as things start to fall apart she becomes crazier and that performance worked Kozumi Sahara and Tashiyahi are all interesting in what they bring to their characters and I also really liked Tachigawa as he goes you know crazy as well what I'm really getting at here is that the acting was good across the board and those not even mentioned also helped to round this out for what was needed and the last thing I wanted to go over really quick here would be the effects the movie uses some green screen which you know you'd get that from the era especially when they're sailing I could tell that it wasn't real but i do have a soft spot for that there's also use of miniatures with the boat which also worked i think the makeup and the effects of the mushroom people was good on top of that i like what they're doing as the people are changing over from eating them as well i think we have some good cinematography here on top of that i just think this is an interesting movie from honda as i really kind of just know him more from his like kaiju films so it's kind of cool to see him do this like creature feature here with an interesting social commentary i had a lot of fun with this one and thought that it was you know a good one overall, and came in with an 8 out of 10 here on Matango. Now, the next two films that I'm going to be covering here, I've, you know, seen quite a bit. And the first one's going to be The Grudge from 2004. This is directed by Takashi Shimitsu. And he also, you know, came up with the original film of Ju-On: the Grudge. And then this screenplay for this one is written by Steven Susco. This stars Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jason Beer, and Clea Duval. This is a... Horror mystery thriller that is from a co production of the United States and Japan that is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being an American nurse living and working in Tokyo is exposed to a mysterious supernatural curse, one that locks a person in a powerful rage before claiming their life and spreading to other victims. Now, as I was saying, this is the one that I remember seeing for the first time not too long after seeing the American remake of The Ring. This one did throw me off a little bit because you know the story is told out of order and it made me feel uncomfortable since then i've seen it a handful of times throughout the years and i've also seen the original japanese version along with all of its sequels now i'm coming back to this as i hadn't seen this one in some time and it did fall into the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series as i'm still working through that list of ones that i haven't seen yet now we start this off in japan we're in the apartment of peter portrayed by bill pullman with his wife of maria who is rosa Blasi. Now he's out on the balcony and looks troubled. Maria wakes up and asks him what he's doing. He doesn't respond, but instead he just slips over the top of the railing, falling to his death. We then shift over to the young woman of Yoko, portrayed by Yoko Maki. As she's going to a house where she's gonna help out, there's an old woman there who doesn't talk much of Emma, portrayed by Grace Zembranski. We learn that she has dementia and needs to have around the clock care. While Yoko is cleaning up the house, she goes upstairs to find Kayako, who is portrayed by Takako Fuji, and is making a weird sound that, and does this before pulling Yoko up before we cut away. We then get to meet our main character here of Karen, portrayed by Geller. Now, she lives with her boyfriend of Doug, who is beer. Now, he's looking for a clean shirt as he's getting ready to go to class. She wakes up, though, and helps him. Now, she doesn't actually have class that day, but she has to go to pick up a book from the care center that she volunteers at. As she stops in, though, her supervisor of Alex, portrayed by the great Ted Raimi, asks if she can fill in for Yoko. She, you know, will go up and check on her patient there as well as, you know, being her first solo visit as Yoko didn't show up for work today. Now, that house belongs to Emma. Karen goes up to find the house tour, much like Yoko did, and Emma is lying in her bed where she has urinated herself. Now, as Karen is cleaning up, she ends up encountering a little boy upstairs of Toshio, portrayed by Yuya Ozeki. Now, she actually found him in the closet as the doors were taped shut now as she's trying to figure out what to do here she ends up being attacked along with emma by an entity in the bedroom we then get to see the events that kind of lead us everything here emma's son is the house that she lives in and he is matthew portrayed by william Mapothor. and then his wife is jennifer who's played by duval and then also living here in the city of tokyo is his sister of susan portrayed by katie strickland now we kind of get to see all this kind of get filled in here as long as well as seeing a detective who's investigating everything of nakagawa portrayed by ryo ishibashi and we also see that he knows the history of the house and that there could be supernatural kind of things going on here and it becomes a nightmare for all those who have encountered this cursed house now that's where i'm gonna leave my recap and chip this over to what i kind of thought about it now this is actually one of us said the earlier you know kind of ghostly j-horror movies that kind of got me into enjoying them now, the last time I saw this movie, my rating went down quite a bit, as I do think the actual Japanese takes on it are better. This one does have it in its favor that the director of Shimitsu was the writer and director of the original, and I think that they would do some kind of cool things here that they incorporate that I kind of really picked up on this time. The first thing is that, you know, being in Tokyo, we have these Americans as our main characters to bring that audience in, but this movie also plays with the idea of being outsiders. Karen needs asked directions on where to go and, you know, needs help there, and we see a mother that helps her, but then hides her daughter when Karen, smiles at her. We also have Jennifer here who isn't enjoying her time in Tokyo. None of them really know the history of the house that the curse is in, so that also kind of helps is that why they could fall victim to it. Now, I do think that, you know, this movie does in the title card in the beginning explain what a juan is here, you know, being a grudge, and kind of fills in that it's, you know, when somebody dies in this like rage and everything like that, that they get stuck. I do think it's a misstep here to not explain a little bit more with like toshio kayako or takio who's portrayed by takashi matsuyama we know how Kaiko plays into things here with peter and we also know that takao did everything it is a bold move by shimitsu to not explain more what a japanese audience would just recognize as a normal haunting elements in their country I get along fine without necessarily knowing it, but I've also seen on the Curse, its sequel, along with the first remake of on the Grudge, along with the sequel there. Many Americans might not know that this is, you know, coming from all this mythology, and I also think most audience members probably wouldn't care as much as I do. Now, the last thing here with the story that I want to go into is the character of Nakagawa. He is a detective, but I also like that he's willing to entertain the idea of the supernatural. Part of this could be that he is Japanese. As an American, though, I'm used to my police not believing, and many times, you know, that works into the story. I like here that he's breaking the norm, though, and we also have, you know, his friends were the officers that were investigating the original case. So we get to see, you know, things happening out there. thought the acting, though, was really good. I think Geller's performance this movie is solid, and I have a crush on her, so that also probably plays into it. But I think she does well as this young woman who has a good heart, wants to help those around her, and is just nice all around. She fits her role very well. I think Beer is fine as her counterpart. Mapothor is solid along with Duval. Strickland has one of the creepier sequences in this movie, and her fear is quite believable. Ishibashi is good in his role as the detective. And i'm also glad that they got uzeki and fuji as in their roles as well because that they were in the original movies on top of that now the latter one is so creepy and pretty much plays the role of Kaiko so well and i also thought the cameos by zebranski pullman raimi and the rest rounded this out for what was needed as well then there would have to be the effects the practical ones we get are good we get a bit of blood here that looks real which i'm always a fan of and the makeup they do for toshio and kayako is really good as well Once again, the latter is very creepy and, you know, help with the look on their face. How she moves also really kind of helps with making Kayako as creepy as she is. Now this version does have some CGI, but I'll be honest, it does work for me actually. It didn't have, you know, any problems that I noticed there and I was pleasantly surprised. And I'll also say that the cinematography was well done on top of that. And the last thing I would come up here would be the sound design. The use of creepy sounds of Kayako works for me. And I also should say, you know, I know it's just recording a comb, but it's such effective. And I don't believe this version actually explains to why she makes that noise, which is kind of a misstep for me. Now, Toshio also making this sounds like a cat is also quite creepy on top of that. And the soundtrack, aside from that, fit for what was needed and does help to set the mood for sure. So in conclusion, I would say that I unjustly came down on this the last time in defending the original series. But I think this is just a different take and incorporate some different elements to it that's not to say that everything does work and I think that there are some things that are left out of this movie that do kind of hurt it in my opinion I do think the acting and the effects are good both practical and CGI for there which does work in this movie's favor and then the sound design and soundtrack also help to set the mood and making this much creepier so I would say this is a good movie overall just lacking some elements for me to go higher and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on The Grudge from 2004. And the other movie I was referring to is Shaun of the Dead from 2004. This is directed by Edgar Wright, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Simon Pegg, who does star in this, along with Nick Frost and Kate Ashfield. This is a comedy horror film that is coming from a co-production of the United Kingdom, France, and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb and a... 4.0 4.0 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a man's uneventful life is disrupted by the zombie apocalypse now this is another film that i'll be honest as a diehard fan of george a romero's of the dead series i was outraged that they're making a parody of it i believe that my dad and family saw this and said how good it was so i relented i ended up really liking this and have always enjoyed it throughout the years now this is one that i've seen quite a bit and decided to give it another watch as part of the podcast under the sarah summer challenge series as i said Jamie also watched this one with me, but she was distracted doing other things as well. So for the most part, we're really following our main character here of Sean, portrayed by Peg, as he goes about his normal day for him. We see others around him, you know, doing the same thing with their lives. Now, he lives with his loser best friend of Ed, portrayed by Frost, and just kind of sits around smoking weed, playing video games, and also tries to sell weed when he has some. Now, they live with Pete, who is portrayed by Peter Serafawenski. Who likes Sean but cannot stay on Ed and this does create some turmoil for them. Now this duo of Sean and Ed love to go to their local pub of the Winchester and maybe they like going there a little bit too much as we get to see that this is wearing on Sean's girlfriend of Liz who is portrayed by Ashfield. And then also joining them is another couple of Diane portrayed by Lucy Davis and David portrayed by Dylan Moran. Now, we get to see as things go out that David is still in love with Liz and has been since college. Now, he has settled for Diane, which kept him close to the two of them. Now, at this date, Sean promises that tomorrow he would take Liz out on a proper, you know, date and go to, like, a nice dinner, just the two of them. But the next morning, Sean has to break up a fight between Pete and Ed, and then he has to go to work where he is the one who's kind of in charge for that day, but his younger coworkers really don't kind of respect him. And then to try to prove his point when his stepfather of Philip portrayed by Bill Nighy shows up to work. Now he does confirm that he's going to come over to visit him as well as his mother. And then he's also going to bring flowers that he's supposed to for Mother's Day. And then to make even matters worse is that Sean gets a phone call from Liz about their plans for the night. Now he's trying to, you know, I said make a point to his younger co-workers about, you know, taking this job more seriously. And Sean ends up blowing her off missing what she says. That's when the zombie apocalypse kind of happens here. Liz ends up breaking up with Sean for, you know, messing up and everything. And he sees an opportunity to prove that he's not a screw up. And then he ends up coming up with this plan to save Liz, her friends, his family, as they're going to try to hold up in the Winchester. There's just so many holes in his plan and things don't go as he would like. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap here. And I'm assuming that most everybody has seen this film, you know, both horror and non-horror fans alike. Now, I will say is that I know I had previously, you know, brought up how I, you know, despise this movie without even actually seeing it and I do know there's quite a few people that don't really actually care for it but one thing I will say is that the co-writer and director of Wright is a fan first him and Pagar as well and this makes sense when you see the cameo they got to make in Land of the Dead because they impressed Romero so much with what they did now this is a comedy horror film with comedy being first I know not everybody finds the dry sense of humor from the United Kingdom to be funny but going along with this though I just love what they do there and i love all the references to the dead series that just really kind of tickle my nostalgia bone and just how well it's constructed of a movie and i mean there is a lot of comedy and it does take away from the horror elements but i still just kind of enjoy it and then going along with that there are still some good horror elements here this is actually a zombie film that is pretty solid and doing well in paying homage now the zombies are a bit dumber than we get with romero but they're kind of doing that so they can you know use some of the comedy elements there but sometimes though they do ramp up When they get trapped in the bar, it gets pretty bleak as the group starts to die off. The blood and gore for the effects are well done, as they went for practical for most of them. Now, there's one scene that's paying homage, especially to the endings of Dawn and Day of the Dead, that was impressive to be in a more mainstream horror movie. I like what they do with the eyes of those that have turned with, you know, the contacts. There is a bit of CGI, but not enough to ruin things for me. I think the cinematography is also well done. To kind of go back to the comedy elements as well, I don't think it would work as well as it does, if not for the acting. I think Peg here is great as our leader, and I like that he's torn between his life back in the day and then growing up. It really takes a zombie apocalypse for him to become the hero that he needs to be, and then we see, though, how hard it is to also kind of step into that role. Ashfield I've always had a crush on from this movie. I think she's just great in pushing Sean to be better. Frost is hilarious and really kind of plays a screw-up, you know, very well davis moran cunningham knight and the rest of the cast really round this out for what was needed i should also point out that we have a cameo by Rafe spall here when he was quite young and then we also have another one by martin freeman as well i also kind of want to give a shout out to the soundtrack here. i love that they borrowed songs from dawn of the dead it would make sense as i believe they were royalty free back when romero used them and then aside from that i like what they do with some of the songs that are like normal throughout the movie And I do know there's a couple of different Queen songs they use. It really just kind of helps fit the mood and also brings a smile to my face along with some comedy elements. So in conclusion, I would say this is a really fun movie. I know I've heard more people not being a fan recently, but I just feel like a couple of guys who love Romero's series as much as I do made a film paying homage to it. This is a comedy first, but it isn't to say there aren't horror elements here. And I just think, like I said, this is just a fun movie just to make sure that I've driven that point home, even though I feel like I'm beating a dead horse there. So I actually think that this is a good movie, you know, really good, borderline on great, and came in with a nine out of 10 on Shaun of the Dead. And for my next film, continuing on with those from the Summer Challenge series, is I have 2001 Maniacs. This is from 2005. It was directed by Tim Sullivan, who also co-wrote this with Chris Coben. This stars Robert England, Lynn Shea, and Giuseppe Edwards. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being eight college students traveling to Florida for spring break stumble into a remote town in Georgia where they are set upon by the residents. Now, this is a movie that I actually picked up on DVD not too long ago for a couple of reasons. The first was that I was getting into the Herschel Gordon Lewis trilogy where this is a remake of 2000 maniacs which was the third film in that trilogy now that's kind of one of those in spirit only as none of them really have anything to do with the other film but they're just kind of similar almost kind of like you would get with like the three mothers or with like the animal trilogy you'd get from like dario argento the other reason was that this movie appears on a list of horror films that i'm working through and then obviously the reason i watched it was the summer challenge series i'm still working through that list Now, just to delve in a little bit more to what we're going through here is that we start off in a college classroom. We have Professor Ackerman, who is Peter Stormer, is giving a lecture on the Civil War. Now, he's doing a good job at presenting the ideas of how the South saw it and how they feel. But then going from this, the opening credits are showing us pictures and reenactments of Civil War stuff. And then during this opening scene here, we get to meet our main characters of Anderson Lee, portrayed by Jay Gillespie. Nelson, portrayed by Dylan Edrington. And then Corey, who's matthew carey now nelson's putting on some antics that ends up getting him caught and he gets scolded for it and then him and his two friends are told that if they don't turn in better term papers than what they wrote they are going to fail and be expelled and they have until the end of spring break to do so now as they're heading down to daytona beach florida so this isn't going to stop them they stop off for gas where they encounter another group that is also going to the same place driving their car is ricky portrayed by brian gross And then we have Joey, who is portrayed by Marla Malcolm, and then Kat, who is portrayed by Gina Marie Heakin. Now, Corey tries to entice him to hang out as his father owns a beach house that way. But then the group ends up getting tired the night before. They wake up to find a detour sign. It takes them into the woods, where they end up on a town of Pleasant Valley. Now, they're shocked when they're greeted by Mayor Buckman, portrayed by England, and then along with the rest of the residents. This group is made the guests of honor for their Guts and Glory Jubilee. Showing up right behind them is Joey, Cat, and Ricky, and they're not the only ones that also show up, as there's Malcolm, portrayed by Mushand Lee, who's a black biker, along with his girlfriend of Leah, portrayed by Bianca Smith. Now, things aren't as they seem here. The more this group gets to know Mayor Buckman, Granny Boone, who is Lynn Shay, and Harper Alexander, who is Andrews, and then the other people in this town, this group of Southerners might be still bitter about what happened during the Civil War, and the memories might still be a little bit too fresh for the time that has passed, and this could be a nightmarish weekend for all those that are not from the town. So first thing I want to start off with here for my analysis is that this is a satire. But I feel like this is the only way you could kind of give us a story as that if you play it straight, it comes off too racist. That isn't to say that there aren't that elements there, but it does work here that the villains are all members of the Confederacy. It should also be pointed out here that due to the being a satire, this movie also leans into the comedy as well as I did say that this is a, you know, partial comedy. What I will say here is that not all of it works but there are some things here that did make me chuckle at times. Now what I want to go to next I won't give away the reveal of what happens with this town but I do have family from the south. There are many of them that despite not being alive you know during the civil war still resent the north. Heck I've even heard the term war of northern aggression thrown out at one of my family reunions. I don't want to get too political here but I Mean at the time of seeing and writing this there are some people who attack the capital of the united states harboring some of this hatred that we have here and i like that we're pulling some real beliefs here for the basis of this movie but i will say i can't fully fought the southerners with how they feel i'm not going to justify their actions as i don't agree but what i will say is that i would also be angry if you know sherman and his army came through and just ravaged the land like he did this small town might have been innocent and everything And it doesn't necessarily deserve what happened to them per se it is hard to agree with them to the extent though of how racist they can be so it is an interesting line here to tiptoe now moving away from the story i do think the acting here is pretty interesting as we have people like england his performance i thought is you know very similar to like what he did with like freddy krueger and he's just having a good time. She has another one that I could say the same thing for. I dug what Andrews is doing as Harper. And I'm not the biggest fan, though, of our heroes, to be honest. We have this group of bros with Gillespie, Edrington, and Carey. They don't deserve to die, but they're just not likable for me. Malcolm, Hinken, and Gross aren't great, but I don't mind them as much. I do dig Leon Smith, though. He seems like a guy who has dealt with some stuff, and it has toughened him up for sure. I thought the rest of the cast was fine. No one's great here, but it is a satire, so they're hamming it up, and that works. I do think that the effects here are pretty solid. I didn't realize that until watching the credits, but Greg Nicotero was the supervisor here, and KNB did the practical stuff. So for the most part, they're all looking really good, and there's just some slight issues that I have here and there, but nothing major. Now, there is some CGI that doesn't really work for me. On the whole, though, the effects are above average, and I would say the cinematography is well done. And the last thing here would be the soundtrack. Is the music and lyrics of the original theme are kind of updated here, it is really catchy, and I find myself humming it after seeing this, and the lyrics are just kind of funny. There's also this duo in the movie that will sing everything, and it's almost feels like we're at a stage play where they're kind of telling us what is happening and I found that to be funny. The rest of the music isn't my favorite, but it does fit for what the movie needs, and I can't fault it there. So in conclusion, this is just an interesting satire that oddly works today. We're really definitely getting like a two wrongs don't make it right with having this village being destroyed in the past and the residents, you know, getting their revenge. I've already kind of went through everything else of this movie. I found it to be just above average, and a 6.5 out of 10 is my rating for 2001 Maniacs then this one i was actually debating whether it was going to be a featured review or not but i ended up just making it a mini review here and this is my first 2021 release of the year which is hacksaw this is actually from 2020 but you know it came out you know very early here on like january 5th i believe now this is written and directed by anthony leone it stars amy k brian patrick butler and michael c burgess this is a horror film that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 2.8 on imdb and a not enough ratings yet but it looks like it's hovering around a one star maybe one and a half stars give or take and the synopsis is a young couple on a road trip takes a detour to the site where a notorious murderer of ed hacksaw crow became an urban legend They quickly find that the legend might not be quite as dead as they were counting on. Now this movie I ended up watching, as I said, for my first 2021 horror film release, officially. This one, though, I'll have to be honest, didn't know a lot about it, and the rating for it did pop up, which made me a little bit leery. Regardless, I decided to give it a chance to see if there's any sort of potential with it. Now, just to kind of give us a little bit more background here is that we have an interesting cold open. We get this woman that is tied down and has plastic around her. The movie then does well in showing, you know, good practical effects. I will have to give credit there as it knows how to shoot things using what the Masters back in the day would do with close-ups where you're using flesh that might not look like real humans if you're too far out, but if you're close enough, you kind of, you know, don't really notice that. Then we meet our young couple here that we're going to be following of Ashley, who is portrayed by Kay, and then her boyfriend of Tommy. Now, he has recently proposed, and she has accepted. They're going to go visit her family to share the news. Tommy wants to fly where Ashley wants to drive. Now, much like many relationships, they do what she wants. And then interspersed with this is that we are getting this news reporter by the name of Max Hart, portrayed by George Jack. Through this, we get a little bit of the backstory about the hospital that Ed Crow murdered his victims in. The building then has been approved to be torn down, and many in the city are quite happy about this. We also learn, though, that Ed didn't act alone. He had a cult of followers that helped him. Now, on their journey, Ashley and Tommy hear a news report about the building and want to stop off to see it. Well, at least he does. Now, she's against this, but he uses guilt to kind of change her mind since they've stopped off so she could take pictures. There's not much to see with this building, but Tommy is looking for a way in she isn't on board with this and goes to get food it is while she's gone that tommy meets a strange man portrayed by burgess who for 20 dollars shows him a way in this is just where the true nightmare begins for this couple as this hospital isn't as empty as they thought now i'm gonna be honest here the recap i gave you for this movie is literally about 45 of the 65 minute runtime it does make sense that the writer director of leone's this is his first feature we do get some good things here but it is lacking quite a bit as well I'll start with some of the positive, though. I like the idea of this killer of Ed Hacksaw Crow, and I think it's an interesting one. I like that he worked in a hospital before he snapped. I also like that he doesn't work alone. He has a cult of followers that is even more interesting when this movie reveals the truth behind that. Now, there is a special thanks here to Toby Hooper, and it appears that Leone is also a fan of Rob Zombie. I can really see the influence here of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then, you know, because of what Rob Zombie has done, also some of that influence there. What I liked Would have been more of the story to be fleshed out personally i'm sure that we have this low running time is partially budgetary but this could also have been that an aspect to kind of focus on a little bit more though i think now going from there we focus a lot on this relationship with tommy and ashley and to be honest i really didn't like either of them and for the most part we're just kind of seeing them bicker i get this is to help learn more about them as characters but all it made me do is to hate them in the end For a movie like this, you really need to get me behind this since it's kind of like a pseudo-slasher. The other thing is that the character of Max, another guy that I know he's there to fill in backstory of the location and our villain, but another one that I just hated. There feels like a lot of filler here, which isn't good when you have only a 68-minute runtime. Now, to get back to some of the positives, it would be the effects. I've already gave my praise earlier, but I'll be honest, the opening sequence made me feel uncomfortable. It does feel like this movie was based around the opening and ending sequences, since the credits are kind of given a lot of credit to the people that did the effects. I'm glad that they went practical for both of these, and that really does work. Not everything here does, though. The movie does go found footage for a good stretch, and as I've said my piece on the characters that we focus on, it doesn't necessarily work for me. This feels mostly to be budgetary again before it switches to a normal movie where we get to watch what is happening. I think if you're going to do this, you need to stick to one or the other as it doesn't fully work when you kind of split the time. Now, I've already kind of said my piece on the characters, but the acting I thought was fine, but nobody's really are horrible. I do think that Kay is solid in showing fear as things ramp up, and I feel that I know who her character is. Butler, much of the same. I just don't necessarily like who their characters are written as. Burgess is solid at being creepy, and the rest of the cast just rounded it out for what was needed. No one is really good here, but they're just fine. The last thing I briefly want to go over here would be the soundtrack. I love the track that they have underneath the opening and closing sequences. That just does well with the creepy vibe, and especially with what we're seeing there. From what I remember, the found footage aspects are using just ambient noise there, and I'd say that the rest just isn't great, but it fits for what was needed. In conclusion, this feels like somebody's first feature. I think the story is lacking quite a bit, but there is a good foundation here that they could have just developed a little bit more, could have been better. The characters themselves are weak, but I think the performances are fine and the practical effects are really good and the soundtrack during those scenes works as well. It's just lacking quite a bit in some of the other categories for me. Overall, I'd say this is a below average movie for me and my rating here for Hacksaw is a 3.5 out of 10. And then I also watched for my Odyssey Through the Ones frankenstein from 1931 this is directed by james whale it is based upon the composition by john l banderston this is from the novel by mary shelley is adapted from the play by peggy webley this is from the screenplay It's co-written between garrett fort and francis edward Farragog, richard schroyer was the scenario editor and then uncredited contributor to the treatment would be Robert Flory and then John Russell was a contributor to the screenplay construction, also uncredited. This stars Colin Clive, Mae Clark, and Boris Karloff. This is a drama, horror, sci fi thriller that is from the United States. This Universal Classic is sitting on a 7.8 on IMDb and a on letterboxd with the synopsis being dr frankenstein dares to tamper with life and death by creating a human monster out of lifeless body parts this is a film that i didn't actually see until after i graduated from college i got the box set that i believe had all of the universal monster movies and i decided that i wanted to check out you know more of the historical horror films i know the first time i really didn't care for this but you know i had higher expectations in my head now, this is probably my third time seeing this as, you know, part of this odyssey through the ones that I'm doing. Now, just to kind of give a little bit more information is that we're following a Dr. Henry Frankenstein, portrayed by Clive, along with his assistant, of Fritz, portrayed by Dwight Fry. Now, they are watching and hiding at a funeral. And then once everybody leaves, they dig up the body that is buried there, and they load it onto a cart as they're leaving. And they also come upon somebody who has been hung. Henry wants Fritz to go up there to cut him down, but they end up figuring out they can't use the brain, and I'm assuming this is due to the neck snapping and that it's damaged the brain stem. Now, we then also get to meet Henry's fiance of Elizabeth, portrayed by Clark, as well as his best friend, uh, Victor Moritz, who is portrayed by John Bowles. They are concerned for him as he's dropped out of college and conducting odd experiments in a tower that he's been living in. They decide to try to find him to see if they can help now henry has fritz go to steal a brain for him from the college that he was enrolled in of the goldstadt medical college we get to meet a dr waldman who is henry van sloan as he's lecturing on the differences between and what we can see with a normal brain as well as a normal one of a criminal fritz gets spooked and the normal brain is damaged so he has to take the one from the criminal instead then we have elizabeth and victor meet dr waldman to try to find out more about what henry is doing the trio of them go to the tower on the night of the experiment. Henry is leery about letting them in, but it is storming, so he relents. But they get to witness the success and creation of the Frankenstein's monster, portrayed by Karloff, and it doesn't necessarily give the results that Henry was looking for, and the monster can't be controlled. Now, I'm glad that I've given this movie a couple rewatches. Now, previous to this, I did see this on the 35mm print at the Gateway Film Center part of their Universal Monsters like line that they would do there. That doesn't mean, though, that I don't have my issues still. It does capture the story since the alternate title of this book was the modern-day Prometheus. The idea of playing God is a theme in this movie, especially with the character of Henry. This is something he literally states as his experiment is a success, and although Prometheus doesn't provide humanity with life, it does provide fire if you follow the myth. Something else that really struck me about this monster and what happens to it. It's definitely a tragic figure. I've made the joke that, you know, I didn't have to be born and have to deal with life. I couldn't imagine being born, though, into an adult body. It is trying to learn but doesn't necessarily understand, and the power that it has makes it quite difficult to control. This idea really struck me after this viewing. The monster is really infant in its knowledge and understanding, but the body has great power. It is going off of this, you know, its base needs of food, water, and pleasure, and the idea of being, you no know, tragic is reinforced for me. I do have an issue, though, is that this movie only is used in about half of the novel we don't get any of the creature to learning and therefore we don't really you know make him into the villain like the novel does there is the aspect of him being lonely and wanting to mate that is completely cut out of this film and of course that's the sequel i just think this movie is lacking by having you know some of this not in the movie as i feel that this is where the real tension comes from the monster punishing the creator It also doesn't make sense as the monster showing up to the mansion during the day of Henry and Elizabeth's wedding because he's never been there. So it's almost just like happenstance, which I don't necessarily like. I also have a personal gripe with many of these Universal films. I think it's lacking a subplot or two. It's hard for me to fault it, though, because this is still early into cinema. But much like I said with Dracula recently is that I just necessarily don't think they develop new ideas. And they don't need to is that there's literally parts of the story that they're just kind of leaving out that could help to make everything a little bit deeper think the acting here is good clive is solid as the mad scientist and you can also see the mania that he's dealing with as he's trying to prove his experiment when he really you know you feel bad for him when he doesn't know what to do with life afterwards it isn't necessarily the success though that he was looking for and the lack of the control over the creature really drains the feeling of him being a god clark is fine as his love interest what i find interesting though is that she loves henry but she has this feeling of dread as the events are coming up of their wedding Bowles is intriguing to me as i kind of feel like he's a snake but he as he loves elizabeth and henry is his best friend he doesn't act on anything though i just don't trust him karloff is amazing as a monster he doesn't have any lines really except some grunts and like things like that but kills it with his performance to convey the creature as it's all done through body language which is on point sloan and fry are solid in their respective roles the rest of the cast definitely rounds us out for what was needed and then as of the effects we really don't get a whole lot of them but you don't expect that in this early era of cinema and filmmaking i don't love the look of the monster but i do recognize that it's iconic i'm not entirely sure why they went this route but i'm not going to hold it against the movie i just prefer the more realistic look myself but the cinematography is well done and overall you know for the era so like i said this is definitely a classic i like the story of the film and i think that it's quite relevant today i think the acting really brings us to life but it could have done with a little bit more of development for the story here I would just say that this is just an above average movie it's just lacking for me to put it into that good category but I recognize still as I said that this is a classic movie but my rating here for Frankenstein from 1931 is a 7.5 out of 10. And that's all I'm gonna have for mini reviews of this week so what I'm gonna go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
2: Do you hear that? Hear what? The song of the fall. I can hear it now. That's the wolf girl who sings. This story begins some time ago. For months, they made their way across the country. Starved and desperate, they saw a young girl. Flesh that would serve as sustenance. foo entered the forest giant wolves ran wild <laughs> yes! the young girl's pure song had awoken the forest <laughs> and it wished to protect her the forest was a defender of the innocent it sensed. ...harsh and punishing emissaries. (coughs) The company of wolves is better than that of man.
0: And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be my 2021 film of Hunted. This is technically from 2020, is when it was made and probably doing a little bit of its festival round, but it's getting its wide release this year thanks to Shudder. This is directed by Vincent Paranod, who also helped write this with Leah Paranoolt. And then also doing the Polish language. Looks like Steven Shields and David H. Pickering worked together there. This stars Lucy DeBay, Araya Warthalter, and Sirian O'Brien, along with Ryan Brody, Simone Hillsdoctor, Mikhail Sladden, Bruce Ellison, Giles Van Layla Pucupas, Salia Zanani, Kevin Van Dorschler, Jean Matthias Pondant, Gleamin Gerbush, Vladimir Rydlund and Alexis Vendelin. So I do apologize if I butchered any of those names. Uh, there's a lot of foreign stuff in there that I was trying to get through. This is an action thriller, but this definitely should also include horror on there as well. This is a co-production between Belgium, France, and Ireland. This is sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd currently, with the synopsis being... The company of wolves is better than that of man. Once upon a frenzied time, woman meets man, woman dances with man, man kisses woman, man grips woman, woman escapes man, man chases woman. Nothing new, or is there? I'll be honest, I do not like this synopsis at all, but it is what it is, and that's what I have to work with. But this movie I got turned on to when Mark Nato shared his list of horror movies getting released in January here for 2021. This can be a tough month to find new horror, especially with the theaters not being fully opened and, you know, being still early in the month. I did confirm with him, along with my buddy of Tim, who both had already seen this, as to if this was horror or not. Since both confirmed it, I figured I would, you know, make this the featured review instead of Hacksaw. But before I jump into, you know, recapping the movie here, I do kind of want to go through my feature notes about some of the, you know, key people that are behind creating this movie here. Our director of Paranaut has been in charge of nine films. Three of them have been in the horror genre, with the first one being from 2009 of Villamole 81. He followed this with Asylum, Twisted Horror, and Fantasy Tales from 2020. I haven't seen either of those two as of yet and then as a writer he has six films to his credit aside from this movie he also wrote Villa Mole 81 that's in genre and then his co-writer of Leah Paranaut only has this as her credit for you know writing anything in films Shields is credited for writing the Polish language here as I said looking at his credits though it's kind of interesting he has seven of them at this time he wrote The Hole in the Ground from 2019 which I have seen I did enjoy that he also is the creator of Zombie Bashers a tv show from 2010 Helping with the Polish language here is Pickering, who has nine writing credits. This is the only thing in genre aside from a short called Ad Bord du Monde, and that is from 2011. The star of d has 24 acting credits at this time. This is the only one of hers that I've seen and the only one in genre. Much of the same as her co-star of *Worthalter*. He has been in 22 films, and again, this is the only one in horror and the only one that I've seen. And then the last one I'll look at is Syrian O'Brien, and it looks like for him, I'm not sure if this is his only feature that he's done, as he's done some TV, and I have seen him in the Tudors from Showtime. I get what they're doing here by giving up the story that we see in early in this, but framing it as kind of a fairy tale. What really takes us to where we start here is that there's a woman who is credited as the Huntress, and she is portrayed by mills doctor now telling a story to her son of jeremy who is portrayed by ryland it is a story of the wolf girl and what she is trying to claim here is that what we're hearing on the wind is actually her calling out the wolf girl that is now they're camping in the woods and she tells the story of a priest by the name of nicodemus who raised an army and met his demise in the woods to a woman he branded as a witch and The reason he does so is because the woods came to her aid and because they were getting ready to kill and eat her since they were starving. And then the wolves end up killing him along with his followers. We then get to meet our lead of Eve, portrayed by D-Bay. She works as overseeing a construction project. There seems to be issues and her boss isn't happy with her. Now he is portrayed by Dorshlayer. She is stressed from this and it makes matters worse that her boyfriend of Alex, portrayed by really it's only his voice of Vandalayadin is he's not giving her much space. As the night unwinds, she goes to a bar for a drink. It is there that she's hassled by a guy who wants to buy her a drink and take her home. She is saved in the situation by another guy who is portrayed by Vorhalter. The two of them hit it off, you know, drinking and dancing, and they end up going outside for a cigarette where they kiss. The two of them go to his car, where we see that things take a turn. His friend of O'Brien gets in the front seat and drives away from the bar. As fear sets in, Eve has to be let out. She does and goes to a nearby gas station for help. She's hoping that the guy and his accomplice will leave her be, but this is just the start of her nightmare. The gas station attendant is killed and she is kidnapped. Through a conversation in the car, we see that our main villain here is a bit unstable. He isn't paying attention and they end up getting in a car accident in the woods. Eve is able to escape, but the two men are pursuing her. It becomes a game of cat and mouse as Eve tries to survive her attackers and the elements to, you know, find safety. She will also need to find strength to go from the hunted to the hunter if she hopes to survive to tell her tale. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap of the movie. What I should point out is that the synopsis on the IMDb is different from what I saw in Shudder, which was that this was going to be a take on Little Red Riding Hood. That makes a lot of sense to the story that we're getting in the beginning that is really kind of setting the stage of how things will play out here. There are also some nods in this movie to that classic tale is that eve is wearing a red hoodie she gets lost in the woods and the guy that she ends up being interested in is kind of a wolfs and sheep's clothing that kind of whole motif there and you know things that affect now i've already laid out and even the synopsis does this this isn't a story that we haven't seen before it is a fairly tired one if i'm going to be honest with some of the tropes heck a movie from last year that i really dug with a similar premise is the movie Alone both that movie and this one end up with our lead being lost in the woods and trying to find herself in more than one way this movie though eve makes some bad decisions where in alone she doesn't really i don't really have an issue with her not being you know sure if she still wants to be her boyfriend of alex or not this isn't my business as they're not married what i do have an issue with though is the bad decision of getting into a guy's car if she wants to sleep with him that's great but Again, that isn't my business, and that's not really why I have an issue is that she wants to, you know, hook up with him. There has been drinking, so I get that her guard is down. It just seems like it isn't that smart to just randomly get into somebody's car like this. I hate that we have to protect ourselves, but and that we shouldn't have to worry about things like this, but you also don't want to put yourself into a bad situation like she does here. Now, I don't want to harp on her, though. What I do like is the growth of her character. It is interesting to see Eve getting yelled at by her boss in the beginning. That is showing us that she isn't as confident as she needs to be. Her ordeal in the woods forces her to have that growth. There is a great scene that is on the poster of her just screaming and, you know, breaking down. This does give away her position, but what I think works here is that she's at the end of her line. She's becoming the wolf girl from the story that beginning. Now, if you know me, I tend to focus on the villains of movies and I like what we're getting here. He is never given a name. He is credited as the guy on IMDb and I think he's the handsome guy on Letterboxd. I actually really like this idea. His friend goes by the accomplice as well. As, you know, a way to annoy him, our villain does call him Andy, but that seems to be something that he just hates and that's why he does it. I actually really like not giving them names as it does humanize them where we need to see them as monsters. The guy is definitely charismatic and that allows him to control his weaker minded associate. This is also something that comes into play later in the movie as well as we can see that because he's so charismatic, he can sway people with things that he says. He does have his issues though too. There seems to be a lack of real confidence and uses violence to exert his dominance over others he also has his fetish to film things like the bad things that he does so he can relive them later these are all things that we kind of get to see throughout the movie without ever needing to be over explained to us and that works not everything though works for me i think that up until late in the second act i'm on board with everything that we're doing here it gets ridiculous from there in my opinion though I do like the encounter that they have with the Huntress, along with her son of Jeremy, who is now portrayed by Brody, who is, you know, now an older person. When I say older person, I mean he's literally a teenager. He's not like an old man. The problem I have is that they run through a paintball game, and then it goes downhill from there for me. I do like that we get to see at the end of the movie, though. We get to see Eve finally descend into full rage, and then there's something that we got to see with a dog earlier in the movie that comes full circle here as well. To go next, I want to shift this over to the acting, and I give a lot of credit to DeBay i think she does an excellent job with the character growth what we see is that she isn't really necessarily in control of her life in the beginning and this ordeal makes her to become the strong woman that she has to be by the end to survive Worthalter is great as this villain as well he's such a manipulator but i like the subtle things that he does when we you know see some of the things that's in an act O'Brien is great as his counterpart, who is weak minded and easily controlled. I think the rest of the cast are on the spot for what was needed and helping to develop these characters as we need. This is really a two person movie, though, with DeBay and Warhalter. Next thing would be the effects. It really isn't one where we get a lot of them, but we get to see that they're all done practical for the most part. The blood we get looks real. The accomplice gets wounded in the car accident, and I love seeing that. It looked quite good, actually. We also see that the effects of things happening two people that worked for me as well. I think there's kind of like an animation where they're telling the wolf girl story that was a good choice since it is you know kind of fairy tale like and I also think that there's some really good cinematography throughout this on top of that. The last thing I kind of want to go over here would be the soundtrack. I think what they do here works. None of the music necessarily stands out to me but there is this great scene where Jeremy is listening to music on headphones. He's shocked by something that he sees and we can hear dramatic music. When the headphones get taken off the music stops. I thought that was Done brilliantly. I would say that the soundtrack works for what was needed on top of everything there. So, in conclusion, I thought this was an interesting take on the Little Red Riding Hood story. It isn't traditional in that sense, but it is an empowering take on feminism as we get to see Eve, you know, trying to survive this ordeal. The growth of her character and performance of Debay works. The rest of the cast and acting was good as well. I thought the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack kind of worked for what was needed. It does lose me later in the movie as it goes a little bit whimsical, which is a shame as i thought they were pretty strong up until that point overall i thought that this was an above average movie some changes and i think this could have been you know really good but it just kind of has those missteps for me so my rating here for hunted is a 7 out of 10 now this movie is still fairly new so i'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that So what i'm gonna end up doing here is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review on here which is going to be an older movie as i do my you know new year new movie that i have not seen before
2: how would you like to disappear disappear go undercover you know this man
1: who's here i you're here.
2: these victims are all the same physical type what about him skip late 20s 140 150 pounds dark hair dark eyes have you ever seen him before i want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy how where <gasps> Hello?
1: A New York City detective, in search of a killer, is about to disappear into the night.
2: Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're gonna end up the same person when it's over?
1: An odyssey to the edge of city
2: life. The bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this, uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is, the one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him.
1: If you want to play, I'll play with you. He's the wrong guy. Prints don't match. What he sees.
2: Who's here? What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. I'm here. This is stuff going down. I don't think I can... uh, I can deal with it.
1: Yes! Yes! You're here. What he experiences. He discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino,
2: who's here? I'm here. You're here.
0: Cruising and for my second featured review here is one that's not necessarily a horror movie but i will kind of get into why i'm still including it and that is cruising from 1980 this is written and directed by william friedkin and the writer here of the novel is gerald walker that this is based from this stars al pacino and paul sorvino along with karen allen richard cox don scardino joe Spinell, jay acovoni randy jurgensen barton haymond gene davis arnaldo santana larry atlas alan miller sonny grasso and a young ed o'neill as he was credited as edward o'neill for this movie this is technically a crime drama mystery thriller that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 6.5 on imdb and a 3.5 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being a police detective goes undercover in the underground s and gay subculture of New York City to catch a serial killer who is preying on gay men. Now, this is a film that I'd never heard of until I got into podcasts. podcast. It popped up quite a few times for me, and what was shocking is that my favorite actor of all time is Al Pacino. So, not sure how this one eluded me, and it seems like a cult classic for sure. Now, I knew a bit of background, but not really, you know, fully sure what I was getting into with this movie. And then before I kind of delve into everything, let me give some featured notes real quick. Our director of Friedkin has 30 directing credits. Of them in the horror genre, four of them would be, you know, in this. There, of course, is the classic of The Exorcist, a favorite of mine. He took quite a bit of time off for coming back with The Guardian in 1990. He did Bug in 2006, which I also liked. And then he also did The Devil and Father Amorth from 2017, which is an odd little film for sure. The only one of that bunch I haven't seen is The Guardian. And I've also seen his movies of The Hunted and Killer Joe, which I both, you know, enjoyed of them. When it comes to writing, though, he's wrote seven of his films. Of these in the horror genre it's just The Guardian and The Devil and Father Amorth. The writer of the novel of Walker, this is the only movie that he has that has been adapted into a movie that I could see. And he also has one acting credit as well. Now, surprisingly, our lead of Pacino has been in 85 movies, none of them in the horror genre. Of course, I'd seen him in such classics as The Godfather, Serpico, The Godfather Part 2, My Favorite of Scarface, as well as Son of a Woman, to just name a few. His co-star of Sorvino has been in 130 films overall. Unlike Pacino, though, Sorvino has been in eight horror movies. The only ones that I've seen is The Stuff. Now, he was in Chiller, Repo the Genetic Opera, The Devil's Carnival, Jersey Shore Shark Attack, Sicilian Vampire, Alleluia the devil's carnival and bad impulse from 2019 as his most recent but i've also seen him in the films of goodfellas and romeo and juliet he's definitely an actor that you kind of recognize quite a bit now the last one is going to be the actress that i have a crush on of karen allen from back in the day she has 55 acting credits three of those in the horror genre the first that she was in was ghost in the machine a movie i watched a lot growing up but haven't seen in quite some time she's also been in ripper and 50 states of fright are the other two Now i haven't seen them but the latter one intrigues me quite a bit and then of her movies i've also seen her in animal house the wanderers raiders of the lost ark starman scrooge the sandlot indiana jones and the crystal skull now to get into this movie where i think i want to start this off is the term cruising and what that means now as police officers when they're driving around looking for things to do it is considered cruising it is also a term for gay men when they're looking for someone to hook up with Now for the movie, we start on a barge where they notice something in the water and it turns out to be a severed arm. We get a taste of how ineffective police work can be, especially in New York City. They don't want to file this as a homicide as it creates more paperwork and it creates a new case and they have nothing really to go off of. We then shift over to our patrolman of D. Simone, who is portrayed by Spinell and his partner of Desher, portrayed by Starr. We see them hassle some transvestites, or at least guys that are just dressed up as women. And then Drescher ends up forcing one of them to perform oral sex on him, which is kind of sleazy. We then shift over to a gay club. The person that we're following takes someone home who turns out to be an actor by the name of Lauren Lucas, portrayed by Santana. He is tied up and then stabbed to death. We don't get a good look at the killer, but in a creepy voice, we hear him state, you made me do that. Now, the body is found and an autopsy is done. It turns out that the killer is impotent in a way. The ejaculate doesn't have any sperm in it. This case is being helmed by captain edelson who is sorvino there appears to be a serial killer kind of prowling around the city here and it looks like all of the victims have been gay and they all look very similar to each other but that the mo of each murder might be just slightly different but there does seem to at least be a pattern here now to get to the bottom of this case they call in steve burns and that is pacino he's a patrolman but looks very similar to the victims captain edelson wants. To make him a deal steve will go undercover in this gay scene as john forbes and try to get to the bottom of who is doing these killings it makes steve uncomfortable at first and then we see the toll that it takes on him the deeper that he goes into this case we see a couple of potential suspects like skip lee portrayed by a and then we also have stewart richards portrayed by cox or could it be one of the cops that we saw earlier in this movie Can the killer be discovered before this case breaks Steve and before, you know, too many more victims are claimed? Now, that's where I want to start my analysis, and I will be honest, I was questioning if this movie was going to be horror or not. The easy answer here is no, but there are some really dark elements. It is more of a police procedural, and heck, I would even go as far to say this could be almost an American take on a Giallo film. Now I only really review horror so what I really want to focus on here are those darker elements and what I take from this movie and why I kind of consider this to be a horror adjacent a film for what we get from there. The first thing would be the character of Steve. He takes on this task of going undercover. What I like is that we get to see a bit of his life before he does this though. He is dating Nancy who is Alan and they seem pretty normal. The deeper he goes into this lifestyle we see that it is you know making his life fall apart. Steve isn't gay, but I do think there's a part of him that is curious. He befriends his neighbor of Ted Bailey, portrayed by Scardino. What is interesting here is that they get along well and they can talk to each other. And when things are falling apart with Nancy, he can confide in Ted to, you know, feel better. Do I think he wants to be intimate with him? No, but we do get an interesting scene of what happens when Steve meets his roommate of Gregory, portrayed by the great James Remar, and how he is jealous of Steve. Now what I want to delve into the next is the killer. This is based on real murders and is also loosely based on a book about those. What I really want to combine here is what I can see of somewhat being a giallo and why I do. Steve is trying to find the killer. We are getting to see the killer as he claims a few victims. The face isn't hidden but we don't really get a good look. And we do get some red herrings in this movie as Steve is looking for them. These are all giallo tropes. This movie is also pretty sleazy seeing some of these things that are happening in the gay bars and heck what the killer is doing has a bit of sleaze with it as well as the first victim he literally is hog tying him and then stabbing him to death the motives of the killer feel very giallo like as well what i also want to bring up here to the fact that is in real life it is suspected that there was more than one killer this movie is showing how dirty the police can be and pinning everything on one killer to wrap it up when there potentially could have been more than one and that's what i was kind of alluding to earlier is that The case of these killings, not all of them are the exact same, so there is definitely a possibility that it is two different people, and the movie is kind of ambiguous with some of the things like the voice and what you kind of see at different spots to make you believe that there could be more than one killer. And then the one last thing I wanted to do with the story here is give credit to William Friedkin, who wrote and directed this. He does an excellent job at capturing that dirty, older New York City in this movie. That's almost a character in itself. He also does an excellent job with the cinematography to capture that. Allowing us to see and feel what we would like to be going into these clubs, it has really just a slice of life what it was like for a gay man during this era in the city. To shift this over to the acting, I've already said that I'm a big Pacino fan. This is actually an underrated performance for me, having now seen this. I'm actually shocked that this isn't brought up more often, though. I love seeing him descend into madness the longer he is doing what he does with his undercover work and apparently a lot of the fear that we're seeing on his face was real as well because he's literally going into these clubs and they're doing scenes i like seeing such greats as like sorvino allen Spinell, along with cameos by o'neill remar and Starr. really just a solid performance is i want to give credit to would be of cox there's such a tragic character there and i think he does a great job with it the rest of the cast really just rounds us out for what was needed in my opinion And the last thing I wanted to go through would be the effects and how they were good. We don't get a whole lot of them. It's not that type of movie, but they look to be done practical and it benefited that there really aren't a lot of them as well. I also thought the soundtrack was really good and fitting for what was needed. I guess some of the songs being played weren't really what you'd hear in a gay bar of the area, but I like that the selections that help with that gritty feel that we need to get in a movie like this for sure. So before I kind of finish out this review here, I do have a little bit of trivia that I found on the IMDb. Now, for research, Friedkin would work with members of the Mafia who owned most of the New York City gay bars at the time. Karen Allen was never shown a complete script before working on this film. The director deliberately kept her in the dark since her character Nancy wasn't supposed to be aware of what was happening to Pacino and his cop character as he explored the gay underworld. Two of the notorious gay bars featured in the film, Mine Shaft and Eagle's Nest, end up barring Friedkin from coming in. There's a rumor that there's a cut that ran 140 minutes, but it seems like the footage might be deleted it might still exist they're not really sure but it was cut because of the mpaa would not you know allow some of the more graphic stuff that were being shown here this film is based on a series of murders of gay men that took place between 1962 and 79 in new york city like i was saying earlier there's ongoing protests from the gay community about making this film which made pacino extremely uncomfortable with his role during filming and some of that fear we're seeing is actually real brian de palma wanted to direct this movie but producers could not obtain the rights to the material so he made Dress to kill from the same year instead the lead cop character was a naive 20 something in the book pacino was actually 39 when he made this film which is kind of shocking on first viewing richard hefner head of the ratings board said there aren't enough x's in the alphabet to rate this movie friedkin did some of the research by attending gay bars dressed in only a shock strap this was banned in finland iran and south africa and this film is really just a time capsule of a bygone era in gay life. A year after its released the first reports of age related illnesses were reported in New York City. So that's all I'm going to do for trivia, as there was quite a bit on there. But those are the ones I kind of just found a little bit interesting and thought it would kind of add a little bit to this review here. So, in conclusion, I really like what this movie is doing. There's an interesting feel here that is almost like a Giallo film from America. It does really capture that gritty, off feel of the era for New York City, which. Almost as a character in itself, the acting was really good across the board for me. I think that Steve has, you know, as he descends into madness over this assignment, what effects we got worked. The cinematography was on point and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie. This is one that I would be interested in checking out again and actually would recommend to horror and non-horror fans alike. Not going to do a spoiler section. I don't really feel like there's anything extra that I could delve into here. So for my rating for cruising is going to be an 8 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
1: your eyes, so you can see, so you can see.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to episode number sixty three of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And then, just to close everything out, if you'd like to send me an email, you can send that to me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can really send me anything in there if like, you wanted to discuss something that I've discussed on the show, or if you wanted to, you know, kind of give me any sort of critiques, anything that you want written on the show, just let me, you know, know in that email. If not, also just kind of, you know, just give me kind of a heads up either way. And then, if you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And I will have all of the links to all of that in the show notes for you as well. And the last thing that I would do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to this on, if you could go ahead and subscribe just so that way you never miss a new episode once they drop. And then also if whatever you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and rate and review just so that way I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and make this the best show possible as well as to get out to new listeners on top of that So then for the next episode is going to be New Year, new movie number six. I've already put all of the numbers into a randomizer. And the older film that I'm going to be watching that I've never seen before is going to be The Tenet from Roman Polanski. And then I have a list of 2021 films, and I'm going to kind of look through, read some descriptions, and watch one of those to kind of pair up with it, see which one, you know, would be the best fit for that so I can, you know, keep going with, you know, those new horror movies. And then I'm also going to keep up with The Odyssey through The Ones, as I'm also going to watch the Spanish version of Dracula from 1931 that was filmed at the same time as the Bela Lugosi one, also from Universal on top of that. So I think that's really all I needed to kind of get you up to speed with here on this episode and what I'm going to have on the next one. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing it and have a great time as well. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.